that this morning's service has been abbreviated. Less singing, less praying, uh, and there's going to be a shorter sermon. This is probably just going to last for a few more weeks, and then we'll begin to kind of get back more towards a normal length of service. Um, And as Will said in the announcements earlier, I just want to encourage everyone, remind everyone again, once the service is over, after we've sung our last song and had our benediction, just go ahead and take our fellowship outside. It's a beautiful day. Enjoy the weather. Hopefully we'll be able to hang out indoors soon enough. Okay, now let me also remind you that, uh, that we're doing a, a new sermon series in the life of this church, and it's a topical sermon series. Thank you. Thank you. That's what I was looking for. I thought we would maybe still have it from last week, but apparently we didn't. Yeah, we're going to do a topical sermon series on love. And, and if you remember, uh, last week I gave you the introduction to the series and I told you the reason why we're talking about love is because, well, everything else in the Christian life, if we have it and we don't have love, is meaningless. It's worthless. It doesn't matter if we have all our right doctrine and we don't have love. It doesn't matter if we do all these great things for the Great Commission and we don't have love. If we give everything we have to care for the poor and we don't have love, none of that matters. And we looked at that from 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, I said last week that I don't think that this church is is in any particular danger of being an unloving church, but it's probably best to just make sure that, you know, we uh, stay aware of the potential for us to to have all the Christian trappings without actually having genuine Christian love. And so the way we're going to break this down is we're going to spend four weeks talking about love, love God and love your neighbor. The first two weeks are going to be about loving God. This morning's sermon is going to be about why we love God. Next week's sermon is going to be about how we love God. So with that in mind, let me just pray one more quick blessing on the preaching of God's word and then we will dive in. Lord, you know and I know and everyone in this room knows that there's nothing that I have to say that is worthwhile, but we know that your word is powerful. You speak and universes come to existence, Lord. So help me this morning, Lord, as your servant to communicate your word to your people so that they can be built up into the image of your son for the glory of your name. And in his name we pray. Amen. All right. So few words in the English language can frustrate us as the little three-letter word, why. The word why usually frustrates us when it's used to question something that we assume to be self-evident. So parents, teachers, really involved aunts and uncles, anybody who's ever had to take care of children understands just how frustrating this question, why, can be. Why, 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 why? Parents, some of you who have like empty nesters, you're having like flashbacks right now, you know? As frustrating as the why question can be, you also have to admit that it can be helpful. Sometimes just simply asking why can lead us down a path of knowledge that we never knew existed. Sometimes asking why can bring greater clarity to our lives. Asking why can deepen our convictions. Asking why can open the eyes of our hearts. So let me just give you an example of how that might work. We take it to be a self-evident truth that we should love God. 
But why? Have you ever wondered that before? Why should we love God? Well, I think that there are a number of different reasons that I can think of, but I'm going to give you three this morning, the three main reasons why I think we should love God. And I think they're all fairly obvious. And these are going to be your three points, note takers, three points for this morning's sermon. So point number one, we should love God because of who he is. We should love God because of who he is. So take a moment and think about your own life and think about how deeply you desire to be loved, right? There's nobody in this room who says, nah, I don't really care about being loved. I'm fine. Nobody who's gotten that whole hierarchy of needs thing worked out so that, you know, love is just not something that they need in this life. Okay, now, as you're thinking about your need for love, your desire to be loved, you can think about different reasons why someone might love you, and some of them would be bad, and some of them might be good. So some bad reasons for people to love you might be, you know, your physical attributes, you know? It could be your social connections. It could be the kind of car you drive. Now, most of us, if we have a thimble's worth of emotional depth We want to be loved for who we are, not just what we can do for people. Who we are, not just as a means to an end. We want people to see us, all of us, and we want them to want us. We want them to value us. We want them to love us. The same thing is true of God. God wants us to look at him and to be enraptured, amazed, and awestruck by him. He wants us to be enthralled, obsessed, and utterly consumed with what we see when we look at him. God knows his infinite value, his worth, his desirability, and he wants us to want him for who he is in his very nature. So the first simple answer to this question of why we should love God is that uh, because he deserves to be loved, okay? Now, I think it's... I think it's fair to say that as human beings, we are not necessarily the best at appraising the inherent value of things, right? Things, people. Think about your own life and how often you have wrongly ascribed too much or too little value to someone or to something. You were so excited about this new gadget. For me, it was one of those gator grip uh, ratchet things. I saw it on the infomercial. I thought, I'll never need a ratchet set again. This one gator grip, it'll take care of every size, you know, and it's only $19.99. That's a steal. I highly appraise the value of that quite incorrectly. You do the same thing with people. How many times have you gotten to know someone and you thought, oh, this person's going to be awesome, and then they turn out not to be awesome? Or as you're getting to know someone, you think that they're going to be terrible and getting along with them is going to be a huge burden. And then it turns out that they're actually, they end up being your best friend in the world. Thinking about a wrong appraisal of things makes me think about the time we bought an air fryer. Yeah, I'm not going to talk about that more, but just so you know, it doesn't fry anything. It's a complete waste of money. Okay. Remember when I prayed and I said, I don't have anything worthwhile to say? That's me talking out of my, okay. So, and this is just the nature of human limitations, right? We rarely offer perfect appraisals of things or of people. Now, when you throw sin into the mix, 
Our ability to rightly appraise the value of someone like God, for example, is basically non-existent. Sin blinds us to who God is and his infinite worth. Sin prevents us from seeing God as we ought to see him and therefore we can't know him as we ought to know him. So now my first point restated is this. We should love God for who he is. But given what I've just said, that we're sinners and that sin blinds our ability to see who God really is, then we have to ask ourselves a question. How can we know who God is? If we're supposed to love God for who he is, but we can't see him because of sin, how can we even know who God is? Well, the Bible tells us that God has been very gracious to us. He's revealed himself to us in a number of different ways. He's revealed himself to us in his word. He's revealed himself to us in this world. Right? The psalmist says the heavens declare the glory of God. But Romans 1 comes along and says that we suppress the truth of that glory. But this is an abbreviated sermon, so let me just keep pressing, okay? The main way that we can see who God is is by considering what he has done for us in the gospel. So if you kind of want to write a thesis statement for point number one, there it is. The main way that we can see who God is is by considering what he has done for us in the gospel. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, we see the full magnificence and glory and worth of God put on display. All of his attributes spring to their fullness of life in the gospel. This is a simple this is a simple truth that you already know from your own life, right? People talk a lot about the kind of person that they are, but usually if you want to know who a person is, all you have to do is look at how they live, right? You can talk a big game, but if you don't actually live it, then it doesn't matter. Well, with God, if you want to know who he is, all you have to do is look at what he's done. And if you want to see what he's done with pristine clarity, you need to look directly into the heart of the gospel. And there you'll see all of his attributes spring to life. So let me just give you two examples. We know that one of God's attributes is his patience. His patience. Listen to 2 Peter talk about the patience of God that's put on display in the gospel. 2 Peter 3.19, it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So in the gospel of Jesus Christ, because God loves us so much, he doesn't immediately give us what we, what we deserve, which is a flood of his wrath. He doesn't immediately punish us and send us to hell, which we rightly deserve for rebelling against him and his glory. Instead, he's patient with us. And you can see that most clearly when you consider the gospel. Next, we can say that God is selfless. So when Paul is writing to uh, the Philippians, He's trying to get them to get along, okay, which is what pastors have been doing with people in the church ever since. And he says, listen, you guys have to think of, of other people as more important than yourselves. You have to be selfless. Well, how does he get them to understand that? Well, he points to the gospel, and he says this in Philippians 2, 7 through 8. He said that Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What does it mean 
that God is selfless? Well, if you want to see it with pristine clarity, just look at the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we could do this with God's justice, with God's grace, with God's sovereignty, with everything else about who he is in his nature. Why should we love God? Because of who he is. Well, how can we know who he is? By looking at what he has done for us in the gospel. Now, one of the things that has to happen in order for you to comprehend what you're actually seeing there is God has to remove the scales from your eyes. He has to remove your dead heart, which can't perceive his glory, with a heart that's living that can perceive and love and appreciate his glory. So friends, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, and you don't understand the full value and worth and excellency of God, I would just encourage you to pray and to ask God to open the eyes of your heart so that you can see him for who he truly is and to love him how he deserves to be loved. Point number two. The second reason why we should love God is because he first loved us. 1 John 4.19 says that we love because he first loved us. I don't know who in here might be a fan of Flannery O'Connor, but she's written a lot of short stories, particularly about life in the South. In one of her short stories, uh, she tells the tale of a young man and a young woman getting to know each other in a hayloft on a warm spring afternoon. The young man confesses his love to the young woman as they lie in the hay. I love you. I love you. The young woman doesn't respond. The young man demands that she respond in kind. I told you I love you. Now you say it back to me. Ever been a teenager before? Yeah? Kind of reliving that. How embarrassing. The young woman refuses to say it. I ain't going to say it. The young man insists. Now I told you I love you. This is my best of trying to, you know, with an accent. Now I told you I love you. You got to say it back to me. This ain't right. Go ahead and say it. Tell me you love me. Well, this is not the kind of relational dynamic that I'm talking about here when I say that we should love God because he first loved us. He's not like a petulant teenage lover demanding to be loved back because he first offered his love. That's not what's happening here. What we're talking about here is the infinitely beautiful, glorious, valuable, righteous, and holy God of the universe loving us with a love that is beyond our comprehension when we did not deserve to be loved. That's what we're talking about here. We as human beings, because of sin, have from birth only and always rejected this love that God has offered to us. And yet God loves us anyways. Paul says to the Ephesians that Christ loved us and gave himself for us. We didn't make it easy for him to love us. And if God were a mere man like us, we might say that we made it impossible for him to love us. If only things were impossible for God, that statement could be true to him. Listen to what God says about human beings in their unregenerate state, without the aid of Christ and his mercy and grace in our lives. Listen to how unloving we have been towards the God who made us. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So here's God giving you all of his love, calling you to himself, saying, follow me, love me, be with me. And we just completely and utterly reject him. And we say, no, we'd rather be with Satan. We'd rather be with this world. We'd rather just carry out whatever desires our sinful bodies and minds can come up with. So in order to make this a little clearer, uh, I thought it might be helpful to do a little, a little thought experiment. So join me in using your imagination. Imagine for a moment that you're in a marriage and that in this marriage you're the wife. All right, so all the ladies, you're there. Guys, try a little extra, a little, give me a little extra right now. Imagine that you're in a marriage and that in this marriage you are the wife. Now imagine that you're married to a very, very good man. The best man, right? Amber, not hard for you to imagine. You're, you're, you're tracking. This man is faithful but flexible. He's kind but he's not a pushover. He's funny, yet wise. He works hard, but he plays just as hard. He's gentle, but he's strong. He's patient, long-suffering, yet he's decisive when he needs to be. He's intelligent without being arrogant. Now, we can keep going, right? I mean, this is the perfect man. His 401k stocked to the max. And this good man loves you. And he loves you very well. He loves you better than you deserve to be loved. Now imagine that you, as the wife in this relationship, you reject your husband. You reject him emotionally by ignoring him, insulting him, being hostile towards him, being nasty to him, treating him with disdain, by doing things like disrespecting him in front of friends and family and company. You reject him physically by refusing to share any kind of physical intimacy with him, whether in, the marriage but, uh, whether in the marriage bed or even just holding hands. You reject him socially in that you are embarrassed to be seen with him or associated with him in any meaningful way in the public. You reject him financially by refusing to share any of your resources with him, yet you have no problem using up all of the resources that he quite freely shares with you. And then finally, you reject him legally. And you divorce him. Now, to add insult to injury, after you divorce him, you align yourself with his many enemies. And finally, you end up in a long-term relationship with another lesser man who only and always hurts you and brings you sorrow. And yet he loves you. He loves you deeply. He loves you so much that he still calls you every day. And he leaves you these long voicemails asking you to come home, pleading with you. He loves you so much that he writes you long love letters filled with poetry, memories from the past, actively seeking reconciliation, promising you forgiveness 
Just come home. We can work it out. It's going to be okay. I love you. I forgive you. He loves you so much that he sends friends and family members family members to, to come to you and to talk to you and to try to convince you, to persuade you, to come back home, to stop running, to stop fighting. He loves you so much that he gives up his entire life for you. He gives up his good job with good pay and good benefits. He gives up his nice, comfortable house, his close friends, his extended family, in order to move closer to you so that at any moment he can be there ready to love you and to serve you and to bring you home if the moment arises. He wants to pursue you unceasingly. One day, several years into this whole fiasco, you have a heart attack. The doctors tell you that you need a transplant. If you don't get it, you're going to die. The second that he hears about your great need, without even thinking, he offers his own heart to you. And you accept his offer. And he dies in your place. This is the kind of love that God has loved us with. When John says that we should love him because he first loved us, this is the kind of love that we should think about. Listen to the way Paul says it in Ephesians 2, verse 4. After saying everything bad about us in our unregenerate state, he says, but God, being rich in mercy, doesn't that, doesn't that illustration, that rich in mercy, doesn't that just bring that to life for you? He's rich in mercy. He's not stingy with it. He's not just going to give you a little bit. No, he's going to sacrifice all of himself He's rich in mercy. Why? Because of the great love with which he loved us. And did he love us when we were beautiful? When we deserved to be loved? Like a bride on her wedding day when everything looks pristine, everything is perfect, not a single hair out of place? Is that when he loved us? No. He loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses. Even when we hated him, when we rebelled against him, when we chose the world over him. He loved us, and he made us alive together with Christ. His love is effectual. He made us alive together with Christ. He didn't merely hold out the possibility of life. He gave it to us. He made us alive. Now, in this thought experiment, we don't really know how the wife responds to the final love offering of the husband. But in the gospel, we do know. We do know that this harlot wife responds in love. Brothers and sisters, I hope you understand this morning how much God loves you. I hope you feel it deep in your bones. I hope that not a, a moment passes of your life on this earth without you having a deep-seated awareness of how much the God who made you loves you. And again, if you're here this morning and, and you don't know that love, that love is made available to you now in Christ. It's not some far-off promise for the future. It's a promise that God makes available to anyone and to everyone right here, right now, 
if they will only turn away from their own selfish love and from the love of this world and receive Christ and his love. Listen to 1 John 4, 9. Listen to what he says. He says, in this, that's the gospel, the love of God was made manifest among us. And that word manifest, right, it's something that you, you, can, you can see it, right? It's, it's there, it's clear, it's visible. So in the gospel, the love of God was made visible, it was made real, it was made present with us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. If you want to know what the love of God looks like, all you have to do, friends, is look at the way he has sent his son to love us and to save us. So the second reason why we should love God is because he first loved us with an incomprehensible, beautiful, powerful, unbreakable, unrelenting love. Point number three, we should love God because he commands us to love him. In our scripture that uh, Allison read this morning, and thank you so much, sister, for reading that. Thank you for all the sisters in the church who come up and read scripture. I know it's not easy to stand up before a room full of people, uh, but you all do such a good job. Uh, we read that God commanded his people to love him. You see the same thing later in Deuteronomy thirty sixteen. The Lord says it quite plainly, for I am commanding you today to love the Lord your God. Now, this just rubs us the wrong way. There's just, there's something about the word command and the word love being in the same sentence. It just doesn't feel right. It doesn't seem like love and command go together. So let me give you one more illustration. I think maybe it'll help, help us understand how they actually fit together perfectly. Uh, let's say that you're a dad with a hormone-riddled teenage son. So some of you don't really have to use your imagination too much. Again, some of you might be having flashbacks, but you're a dad with a hormone-riddled teenage son, and your son is, is a sweet kid. He's a great kid. He's the best kid. Everyone agrees. He's amazing. But lately, he's been getting a little mouthy, you know? One day you come home from work and as you pull into the driveway, you see your wife standing there in the door. She does not look happy. Okay, what did I do? As you get closer to the door, she meets you in the driveway and she says, uh, your son, which, you know, that's the, that's the tell, tell, right? You know, your son has been giving me grief all day. And she talks about, oh, he did this and he said this and he was disrespectful in this way. And then finally... Just an hour before you got home, he told me to shut up and leave him alone. Whoa. Dad, it's butt-kicking time, right? Now, as a good dad, not only do you have to, in this moment, discipline your son, but di part of discipline is instruction, so you also have to teach him, right? So there's going to be some butt-kicking, but hopefully there's going to be some teaching to go along with that. And one of the things that you do as a dad, a good dad in this situation, is you sit down, presumably after the butt kicking. I think that'll be the last time I say butt kicking, by the way. You, you sit down with him and you talk about his mother and you say, do you know how valuable your mom is? 
Do you know how incredible she is? Do you understand how great of a woman she is? Do you understand what she suffered and went through for you when she carried you in her stomach and how much sleep she sacrificed and she wears those old tennis shoes for 10 years so that she could pay for you to go to football camp? And, do you, and you just, you articulate every way in which she is a fantastic woman. And you, you look at your son and you tell him to look at you deep in the eyes so that you're on the same page and you say, you better love that woman. Now, in that scenario, does that feel weird at all to command love like that? No, it doesn't feel weird. It feels exactly right. We look at the dad who says, you better love your mother. And it's like, yeah, you better. But for some reason, when we think about God commanding us to love him, it just doesn't feel right. But when you think about it, this is exactly what is happening when God commands us to love him. He's not pointing to someone else because there is no one else as great as him. Instead, he points to himself. And he says, look at me. Look at who I am. Comprehend me. Look at the myriad of ways that I've loved you and cared for you and served you. Look at me at who I am in my very nature. Consider my worth and respond appropriately. This might be problematic if God weren't the most beautiful, most glorious, most perfect being in the universe. If he were anything less than what he is, it would be wrong of him to demand our love and affection. But because he is the highest being in the universe, the greatest, most glorious, most worthy being in the universe, it is completely righteous for him to demand our love and affections. We should also be clear that God commanding us to love him is not the same thing as God forcing us to love him. God has been commanding us to love him since the days that he's created us, and he has allowed us to rebel against him and to disobey that command. Friends, I think we just have to be honest and say that even as Christians, we don't love God as we ought to love him. Even as Christians empowered by his spirit, we are not completely and fully obedient to this command that Christ has given us. And in another sense, we could say that maybe all of our other sins, even as Christians, flow out of this disobedience to this first command. If we truly loved God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, would we fail to love him in every other way? Would we fail to be obedient to him in all of the things that he's commanded us to do for him? No. And that's why I just want to close by talking about the good news of the gospel, not only in salvation, but also in the gift of sanctification. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, we not only receive eternal salvation, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the gift of the Holy Spirit is what empowers us, strengthens us, gives us everything we need in order to be able to grow in our love for God, in order to be able to grow in our obedience to God. Left up to ourselves and to our own devices, to our own flesh and these bodies of death, we would never love God as he deserves to be loved. But what the Holy Spirit does is he is just constantly pointing our gaze heavenward. And he's pointing out the beauties and the excellencies of God. God the Father, God the Son, and even himself. And he allows us to see them with more and more clarity.
And the Bible even tells us that the Holy Spirit seals us for the day of redemption so that one day we won't have to struggle to see God as he truly is and love him as he truly deserves to be loved. We will see him face to face. And in that day, the struggle to love will no longer exist. And we won't have to answer the question, why should we love God? Let me close in prayer.